Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for the Big Time Talker podcast. We're everywhere now on uh, the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Public speaking is coming back, gang. If you are a platform speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner, find one another at speakermatch.com. Our guest today does his share of public speaking. He's probably best known as a great rock and roll drummer. As a matter of fact, Rolling Stone magazine named him one of the 100 greatest rock and roll drummers of all time. Hopefully, he'll be able to turn his head sideways and still get it through the door after those accolades. It's my pal, Kenny Aronoff. Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? So, Kenny, you, you've done a ton of stuff. you played with everybody. We're talking about the music. I want to talk about your book, Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, uh, your public speaking. Um, you've rubbed shoulders with some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry. But I want to roll it way back. For folks that may not know your story or know a whole lot about you, you're originally a Midwest farm boy, right? No, actually, I'm an East Coast boy. My parents came out of New York and Jersey, and then they moved up and, and they went into the country in Western Mass, a very, very artsy, very unique town. You should all look it up. It's called Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud's protege lived there. Uh, they were sculptors. Uh, the painter, illustrator, Norman Rockwell lived there. Norman Mailer, one of the greatest uh, uh, you know, writers of all time. He lived only a quarter of a mile down the road. Uh, there was theater there. So he had summer stock theater in the su- in summer. I met people like Frank Langella, Ann Bancroft, Faye Dunaway, uh, Goldie Hawn, um, and Mel Brooks, and on and on. They had potters. They had the Boston Symphony Orchestra three miles from my house. They had, um, you know, uh, sculptors. I mean, on and on. It was a very artsy intellectual community of 3,000 people. And where I grew up, there were little towns nearby, like a two miles, three miles, four miles. It was just an, an, an unusual place to grow up, a slice of life out of New York, because it was only three hours from New York, two hours from Boston, 45 minutes from Vermont. It was just extraordinary. And so I, it's there that I really got a lot of support uh, to become what I am. My parents were very supportive. Jazz and rock was on the turntable all the time. Not jazz, not rock, jazz and classical. And then rock came along. Yeah. Did, uh, did your parents play? Were they musical? No. My, my mom, well, no, I should say this. My mom played the piano, but she wasn't like a professional musician. And my dad played harmonica. But they both, they both were very huge lover of the arts. And so that really helped a lot. You have brothers and sisters, Kenny? I have a twin brother who's a doctor in psychology, and I have a sister who's a doctorate in sociology, professor at, at BU in Boston. So you've got pretty accomplished siblings, and and as a young guy coming up, and you, you want to do music, what do your parents say to that? Well, I mean, they were that, that kind of liberal type of parents that, you know, you got to go to college, but you can choose your major. Okay. So, so they, they, you know, and there was no school of rock back then. So I, I, the only thing I could imagine doing was studying music in college. So I picked classical music. Now, um, you know, my story goes back. I saw the Beatles at 10 years old on the Ed Sullivan show. And, um, and so at that very moment, that's when I realized 
without really defining it. But I realized that's my purpose in life. That's my deepest desires. That's what I've got to do. That's my passion. I would jump bouncing off the walls when I saw them. I didn't even know who they were. I didn't know where they were from. I knew nothing. So I asked my mom, who are these guys? She said, they're the Beatles. And I said, well, I want to play in the Beatles. You got to call them up and get me in the band. That's what I want to do. And I want to play drums. The hell with the piano lessons. If this is what I want to do. And obviously she didn't call the Beatles up <laughs> and she didn't <laughs> get me a drum. They didn't get me a drum set because we didn't have a lot of money. And I was really bummed out because I didn't know what to do. Uh, there was no TikToks. There was no internet. There was no Instagram. There was no way to see them again. When would I ever see them again? I live in a town of 3000 people. Are they going to be on TV again? Are they going to play live or blah, blah, blah. Best I could do is buy, start buying the records. And I decided, all right, well, I can't be in the Beatles. I'll start my own band. So I, I talked my parents and me getting me a, a cymbal and a snare drum, which I paid off by gardening. And I started my own band called the Alley Cats. And there's a picture in my autobiography, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll. You'll get a kick out of it. But I mean, and you'll see that snare and cymbal. I'm standing up right. and playing and you know, we played Beatles music. I mean, so, I mean, so during all through you know grade school and junior high and high school i just played in bands i was a very very uh you know i i practiced a lot and always was in bands so i always was in the best bands and in my sophomore year some kid in my town was getting better than me on the drums i said man what, what are you doing so well, i'm taking lessons from the percussionists from the boston symphony orchestra since they live you know they're there three miles from my house in the summer so i started taking lessons and that guy steered me into playing uh you know vibes my dad bought me an old secondhand set of vibes uh timpani uh reading you know theory and i was good enough to get into college uh at university of massachusetts uh i did one year there and realized that i was so behind but in within one year it's a long story i can tell it but I ended up at the number one school of music in the United States, Indiana University School of Music, Bloomington, Indiana. That's how I ended up coming to Indiana. And that's where eventually I ran into John Mellencamp. And that's uh, the sort of the beginning of the rock and roll journey. So, so you were 10 years old. You're like a million other kids, millions of other kids who see the yeah. Beatles on, on TV. And it was a, a sort of a life-changing moment for you. Um, Yep. By the way, we're talking to Kenny Aronoff, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time. The book is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. And you can see Kenny on tour now with uh, John Fogarty, the Bodines, and others. Um, have you seen the, the Peter Jackson Get Back documentary yet? I've got that on my desktop to watch. I just have to find time. I've just finished recording a bunch of uh, songs in my studio. And I've been uh, you know, uh, planning for next year. And I got speeches and Joe. Satriani, Fogarty, like you mentioned, uh, I've got uh, uh, stuff I'm doing with this. Uh, this uh, Jim Mercer, the owner of the Colts, has this incredible uh, collection of collectibles. Like we're talking Ringo Starr's kit from the Ed Sullivan show, and he's got G David Gilmore's uh, Strat, Black Strat, three and a half million dollar Black Strat. He just bought a Paul McCartney thing. He goes on and on and on. But what he does, he sets up a small sample of this museum that he's going to eventually build. And then we have this super band that plays out. Um, and it's very, very cool. It's like me, Mike Mills from R.E.M., Mike Wanchek from Mellencamp, uh, 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 Kenny Wayne Shepard, a keyboard player wow. played with Mellencamp, the Bodines, Tom Bukovac, one of the greatest session guys in Nashville, four background singers. And we do very, very cool stuff. 
and it's a very no superstars in the band. It's just a badass band. Jim Mercer sings with us. So this is, you know, check it out. We're going to be coming to cities, maybe all over the world, but the band is cool. And then you get to see this incredible collectible collection. Anyway, that's one of the other things I'm doing. I've always got, I got a wine that's coming out. It's going to a charity. It's going to be somewhat like my personality, bold, innovative, creative, and powerful. And full of color and flavor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so no moss is growing on Kenny Aronoff's back. So I asked you about the, the Beatles documentary. I have also not had an opportunity to see it, but but I'm picturing the little kid, 10-year-old Kenny Aronoff, watching the Ed Sullivan show and then fast-forwarding four decades. And there you are with Ringo Starr. And there you are with Paul McCartney. And I wonder what that 10-year-old Kenny Aronoff said inside you when that happened. Dude, very well said. Because you're not coming from the adult Kenny Aronoff, you're thinking about the little 10-year-old. And those 10-year-old kids still exist in us. That's they right. exist in us even though we're adults. That never, oh, I was absolutely flipped out. And for the listeners to know exactly <laughs> what happened, picture 73 million people saw the Ed Sullivan Show. So CBS does a TV special four decades later called The Night That Changed America. Right. Honoring the Beatles for that Ed Sullivan show. So when I get the call, I'm absolutely screaming with joy. I'm like, are you, am I allowed to swear on this thing? Absolutely. Are you fucking kidding me? I said, wait a minute. All right, we're honoring this. This is Don was called me. Don, he's a big producer. He goes, oh yeah. Are we, are we, are we, I'm stuttering. Are we going to play with Ringo? He says, yeah, I think Ringo's doing three songs and you're going to play with, uh, we're going to play with uh, Joe Walsh from the Eagles. We're going to play with Dave Grove from Foo Fighters. You're going to play with Jeff Lynn, Alicia Keys and John Legend are doing a duet. You're going to play with Brad Paisley, Keith uh, Urban and John Mayer and maybe some other people and um, Pharrell Williams and, and, and Paul McCartney. And I'm like, I was just like, this is insane. This is like a, a Cinderella story, you know, yeah. or a fantasy story, like a dream that your dreams do come true. But the, the takeaway and the message that uh, I want to share with everybody else is that, you know, I did follow my heart. I did follow my passion. I did make some life-changing decisions along the way, which you probably know about, that, that, that didn't make sense to the outside world but it totally made sense inside my heart and i i followed my heart and uh and it and when you when you when you operate from a place of love and joy and your deepest desires and your truth and your passion you, you literally will be unstoppable undeniable and you'll be authentic because i was just being me and and it was that type of desire is what helps you uh, work hard, self-discipline, and persevere when shit is not going good. So, right. so I'm the guy who can't wait to wake up in the morning and do what I got to do. Even back then, even it was practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week. That's what I did. If I wasn't performing, I was practicing. So that desire fuels my ability to wake up in the morning and do that. But one step farther, deeper, is that I'm the guy that doesn't want to turn the friggin' lights off at night because I could squeeze in one more thing. It's just like constantly. I mean, it is 
driving my adrenaline, my serotonin, my oxytocin and dopamine levels. I am stimulated. And that's what people go like, how old are you? And they go like, oh my God, you, you look like you're 40. It's because I'm doing what I love. And it's like, I just am fighting nature and try, I feel young. I'm doing things that make you feel young, look young. And um, so that's a huge message there. And that's what made it possible for me to get that call. If I hadn't been in the game following my heart, I wouldn't have become this guy, Kenny Aronoff, and I would never have gotten that call. Kenny Aronoff is our guest today, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time. The book is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. He has a, a sort of an all-star group of these famous session musicians that play out. You can see him on tour with John Fogarty, Joe Satriani in 2022. And uh, we're talking about the time he got a chance to actually meet some of his childhood idols, in Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. And how great is that? Um, you and I have a mutual friend, Bob Malone, from the Fogarty Band. But I want to take you back to the very first time I met you. And you're not going to remember this, but I have a great memory of this. So it's 1996. I'm a program director of a radio station in Savannah, Georgia. And there's a gorgeous blonde lady that I want to impress. And so I say, hey, I'm a big time rock and roll program director. I've got tickets to see Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band in Charleston, South Carolina. And we go to the show. And I come backstage to the show. She's never seen anything like that. She's too afraid to talk to Bob Seger. But you know who's not too afraid to talk to my future wife? Now my current ex-wife? Kenny Aronoff strolls right over and tries to cock block me with my own date. Of course I did. That was my MO, dude. Oh, my God. I see a hot chick. And let, let me tell you, if, if I was going after her, she was hot. You and were, so you were I, right in it there. <laughs> God, you just completely nailed me. Exactly. Oh, my God. And, you know, you had the leather vest on. There was no shirt. You made the move. I was fortunate to get out of there with her. So, <laughs> oh, my God, that was our first show, I think, of the tour. And I remember being down there and I remember going to soundcheck and for the people listening, Bob Seger is the type of guy, every show was sold out and it was big arenas, you know, as much yeah, as 20,000 people and all those hits and all those songs that you, that guy hadn't toured for 10 years. And it was a sold out show. Uh, you know, when, what you saw and Oh my God. It was a great show, right? Oh, it's unbelievable. Just, you know, there's so much pent up anticipation to see yeah. Seeger. So, hey, before we, we move off it, you mentioned, uh, you know, growing up close to Tanglewood and, and being, you know, around classical music and, and, and learning all of these different disciplines. But where most people who are aware of you became aware of you is when you went off to Indiana and you linked up with a, a young John Cougar Mellencamp. And then that became, you know, a 16 year yeah. run for you, which is a lifetime in popular music, I want to ask you about a story that I have heard about you, and I don't know if it's true or not, and that is that you were passed over to do some of those early recording sessions, but you sucked it up and you said, okay, I want to come in and I want to watch what that guy does and learn and humble myself, and then you had the opportunity to step in and do that iconic drum solo in Jack and Diane. Is that true? Did that really happen? 
Yeah, and I'll be more specific. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I went to Indiana to form a band, to do what a lot of people do, you know, write songs, get a record deal, go on tour. And everybody right. told me, what are you going going back to Indiana? I mean, Indiana, I mean, this, you should go to New York, L.A., and Nashville. But I didn't know anybody in those places. I didn't know where to begin. So I, I got this opportunity. Somebody invested a lot of money. One of the dads had a lot of money, and they invested in equipment and a truck and lights and PA. And it sounded like, yeah. So I went to Indiana and after two years, I failed. We didn't get the record deal. So I'm going to move to New York. I'm having lunch with this singer-songwriter who was asking me what I'm doing. And she said, hey, you know this guy, Johnny Cougar? He's, he just got off tour with Kiss. You know, have you seen his videos on MTV? And he's on the radio and blah, 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 blah. And he just fired his drummer. And I, my eye, eyes bugged out. and went, bing, 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 bing. Oh, my God. Touring, MTV records oh my god videos this is what you know this is the beatles to me so i go outside the restaurant to a payphone because there was no cell phone call the guitar player long and short of it i get an audition i play two songs in, in the audition uh and i get hired i win the audition out of 50 drummers and um, five weeks later we're going to go to la to make a record now i my skill set was uh just more fusion music and I wasn't I didn't understand radio friendly music I, I mean I understood I mean I listened to the Beatles my whole life and the Stones anything on the radio but I didn't understand how to be a drummer that gets a song on a radio to be a number one hit single right because when, you, when you're thinking that way it's not about me it's about we it's about the tune it's about serving the song serving John Mellencamp play the drums it's good for that guy not what I want to do what will make that song get on the radio and so I didn't even understand that because when you're young you're trying to be great at what you do so you just focus on you anyway the the, the producer Steve Cropper came out to Indiana to see what we were doing and I think he saw that I was um a little bit, uh, I had no experience making records to get on the radio. So when I got out there in LA, I told everybody, by the way, I was so excited, you know, I finally made it, this is it. And in two days, John Cougar delivered the news to me in a band meeting that I'm not playing on the record. And and I, I, I got to give it to him, man. He just, he did, he did it himself. I thought John fired me, but it was Steve Cropper that did. And I didn't find this out until about five years ago. It wasn't John. John didn't want to fire me because he needed this drummer when the record was done to go on tour. So, and he told Steve that. Steve said, I don't give a fuck what you do, but he's not playing on the record. But you must have been crestfallen because you told everybody you thought this was your chance to grab the brass ring. What's happening inside young Kenny Aronoff then? I felt like a loser. I felt like a piece of shit. I felt overwhelmed. I felt sad. I felt afraid. I felt all the, the negative emotions and didn't know what to do, but what happened was I uh, I turned into a fight or fight mode. And the words that came out of my mouth after John told me that were life-changing. And as you mentioned, you know, I told John, no fucking way am I going home. And the whole band was like, holy shit. That's like telling me, telling you, you're fired. And you go, no, I'm not. I said, no, you're fired. You go, no, I'm not. I'm like, what the fuck don't you understand about you're fired? And, you know, I just... Refusing because what was happening and I didn't know it was he was trying to take away from take my bliss, my passion, my my purpose. I didn't want to go home. I, I figured this is it. I'm done. I'm staying. You know, so 
I go, I don't know. I just said, well, am I still your drummer? And he goes, uh, he's perplexed. And he goes, well, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. And then I'm stumbling for words. Well, I'm going, well, 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 I'll go in the studio and watch these drummers play my drum parts on your record. And I'll, I'll benefit from that. So I'll learn from them and I'll get better. And that's good for you. I'm your drummer. He said nothing. I went, shit. I went, okay, you don't have to pay me. I'll sleep on the floor. And he went, perfect. So <laughs> that, that, that was, but the thing is, I didn't want to go home because I would be embarrassed. And what was I going to do? I wanted to figure out why am I not getting this gig? So I did learn a lot. I stayed there for four weeks. I felt like a loser. Like I said, I fell out of it. I was very sensitive back then. I didn't understand how this shit works. I didn't have my mom saying, you're great. You know you, what your moms do no matter what. I was on my own. And I was what I was learning for the first time was, dude, you are on your own. And since then, I've learned that you don't look for validation from people. You look for inward validation. You tell yourself, you say, I got this, I got this, I got this. And there are no mistakes or failures. Because if you say you failed, you made a mistake, it's a negative feeling and your actual chemistry will change in your body. Mm -hmm. You want to say, man, I'm a bad mofo, like a running back. They don't, they, sometimes they fumble. That doesn't mean they suck. All they're focusing in on is the end zone, end zone, end zone, end zone, end zone for their whole career. So for me, as a drummer, I learned very, very slowly, but I learned that if you do something that you don't think is good or you could do better, notice I didn't call it a mistake, then you got to push it aside and focus on the next second. Because if you focus on the thing that you're not happy with, it'll distract you. Uh, and you will continue to do things you're not happy with, quote unquote, mistakes. So I, right. I was at the beginning of learning all of this. I went home after four weeks and decided I had to learn how to be a drummer, the best drummer I could be for John Cougar Mellencamp. That's what I had to do. So I, I had I started listening to Stones records, uh, uh, simple records, uh, you know, Creedence records. Uh, AC, ACDC, um, you know, uh, Bad Company, things where the drummers played simple, but had great energy, felt good, had good parts that were simple, that served the song. And I had to learn all of this. And that eventually took me to two years later, where I make that iconic American Fool record, which had that iconic, you know, big drum part on Jack and Diane, which I had to come up with on the spot, or I thought I'd be fired again. Wow. Kenny Aronoff, our guest today, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time with a healthy dose of optimism for you. And the book is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. Um, Mellencamp, if people are not super into that world, uh, is identified on a lot of his stuff as Little Bastard, you know, as widely known in the industry as someone who's not super easy to get along with. I'm not going to ask you to to dish on Mellencamp. But what I am going to ask you is you've had to work in and around a lot of very different personalities in your career, uh, including some incredibly nice people. You and I know some of those people uh, together, but also some difficult personalities. And, and yet you've remained pretty steadily employed for the better part of four decades now at the highest level what advice would you give to someone who's watching, listening, and, and they have a tough time navigating different personalities? How do you do that? Okay, well, first of all, uh, it, it starts with 
the thing I call the three C's. Um, like um, you have to be able to connect with somebody and then communicate with them. That's connect C, communicate C. But on a, a personal level, if I'm working with you, right? And I, I didn't plan this out, by the way. But as I look back, I realize, wow, this is why I kept getting invited back or people would hire me because they knew I, it wasn't just my plane. Listen, it's not just your plane. And in the other, whether it's sports, business, or music, it's not just your skill. It's do people want you around? Are you influencing and motivating the people around you? Teams win Super Bowls, World Series, Stanley Cups, and, you know, NBA titles, not individuals. So I was instinctually doing the right thing. So I would walk in, let's say I'm doing an Elton John record. Uh, I walk right in there and I go right to him, which is a little nerve wracking because he's like Elton John, but I go right <laughs> up to him and I'm like, yeah, man, Kenny, Arnold, nice to meet you. And I've done a little bit of research on what he's doing lately. That's why it's important before you hang with the person you're going to work with, do a little research, say, man, how's that new record coming? Or how's that new house or whatever it is. And then he, you're trying to like him and you want him to like you. And now you're communicating, you have this dialogue, so that now when we play music, now we're collaborating, but we have some sort of relationship, some sort. Now, it goes deeper than that now, because when I teach people in my speaking things about co-elevation and being a real team player, check this out. Remember I said the purpose of a session drummer is to get the song on the radio to be number one. Right. And so so what do I got to do? What do I got to play? It's not about me. What can I do to make this guy happy? I'm studying the artist. I'm studying the producer. I'm still being me, but I'm trying to give them what they want. But I also need the bass player, the guitar player, the keyboard player, and the engineer and the producer. They all have to do a great job or that song will not make it on the record, which will then make it on the radio. So this is what I call co-elevating. Together, we have to do this. So what I do which I just naturally am do is I motivate the room. I, I, I get people around me to be excited. They see my excitement, the ripple effect of my excitement pours onto them. They see, I care about them. I'm just trying to be that guy that gets us. We got to win this Super Bowl, you know? And so that is what gets me hired over and over again. Now you said a very important thing. Like I, I work with so many different people and I'll give you a scenario. Monday, this is back in the nineties. B.B. King and Bonnie Raitt for Air America movie, doing a Dr. John song. Tuesday, Wednesday, Elton John for his box set. Thursday through Sunday, a new Bob Seger record. Then I fly from L.A. to uh, uh, Athens, Georgia. The Indigo Girls, total different vibe. Never had a drummer on their album before. Mm -hmm. I spend a week there. Then I fly back to L.A. land and do Willie Nelson for a day. Then I do four more days with Seger and two weeks with Bon Jovi doing Blaze of Glory for the movie uh, Young Guns 2. Each one of those artists is like another corporation. So I have to be able to adapt to all new people, all new personalities, and I'm great at that. And uh, if you are great at that, then that will serve you well and serve them well, because you have to be able to adapt on a dime. And that's what probably got me, you know, um, so many sessions, you know what I mean? 
and made you very employable by a whole bunch of people. Yeah. You were there uh, pretty early in the John Cougar Mellencamp rocket ride to the top. He'd had a couple of, of hits before you, but you were there for the most part all the way up. And I wonder if that changed you. You're looking back on this now as a grown guy. You were a young guy then. Did that change you on the ride up? And, and did you learn things? Did you, you know, make mistakes that you wish you could undo? Talk to me about being there on the ground floor and then riding it all the way up. Because there was a time when he was one of the biggest artists in the world. Yeah. Well, you're spot on. I went from getting fired in the first, after the first five weeks, and I'm living in a little rental house in Bloomington, Indiana. I had no money. And when we went on tour opening up for the Kinks, we had no money. I don't know what I got paid, but I guarantee you it was very little. You know, I had to count my pennies. I had to count how many quarters I had to play Space Invaders. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I, yeah, we wouldn't make it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's in my book. Anyway, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, two years later, American Fool comes out. It's the album of the year. John right. wins two Grammys. All of a sudden, it's I've got this drum solo on a single that is still one of the two most aired drum drum solos in pop radio. This and Air, Jack and Diane and Phil Collins in the air tonight. Right. I mean, and it's still played on the radio. So, oh my God, I immediately when Jack and Diane went to number one, I was in the same friggin' room that I was in at the Chateau Marmont on Sunset that I got fired in two years before. Same room. So this explains me. So I'm it goes to number one. I'm by myself. I'm just jumping up and down going, yeah, fuck yeah. And then I go, uh-oh, shit. I'm not number one. I know a hundred drummers that are better than me. Oh, my God. I got to do it again. But John hasn't written a song. Oh, my God. He hasn't written a song, so I don't know what I'm going to play. I'm already fast forwarding. I need to do this again. And I'm insecure because I want to do it again right now. But I'm right. going to have to wait a couple of years before we make the next record. So, yeah, I'm, uh, so that, that was huge. You guys, we, we, I, we opened up for heart cause we were still, the record hadn't come out and it was a, it's a nine month tour and heart is huge, but their record didn't do well. And all of a sudden every night, more and more fans came out to see us and we were on MTV and Jack and Diane went to number one and hurt. So good was number two. And we had two singles in the top 10. And all of a sudden we were rock stars. John's career blew up. And all of a sudden who's that drummer. All right. So then we do America, uh, uh, uh-huh record. And now John doesn't want to record anywhere, but in Indiana. So we start building, he starts trying a, a home homemade he brought in a gear and took over his sister's house on a pig farm or something and we're <laughs> in the middle of rural indiana and we're trying to see if we can make records in indiana and that's the album i had pink houses authority song crumbling down three huge hits all of a sudden that record does well and now john doesn't want to go be an opening act anymore so we figure out what venues we can play and sell enough tickets so John could be the headliner. And we took a local band from Indiana to be the opening act. And we were doing like from two to 5,000 seaters. Then John builds a studio because he said, I can do this. Now we come out with Scarecrow, 2 million records. Now we're in private jets. We're selling out arenas. No opening act. No opening act. Three hour show selling out Madison Square Garden, LA Forum arenas we're in our own jet then the next album jubilee 
continuation even bigger. Now we're one of the biggest rock stars in America. It happened friggin' fast. And for you guys, I mean, listening, it is hard work. I was pretty much gone and enveloped by this band for eight years. You, you write the songs, you arrange the songs, you record the songs, then you mix master, then you do promo you know, videos and all this stuff to get ready. You start rehearsing for tour, you go on tour, that's two years. Take a month off, start again. Two years, take a month off, start again. Two years, I mean, you just pound it. And that was how John became what he was. And um, I, it, the way it affected me was I was, I was ecstatic, I loved it, I was grateful. Uh, it was so happening so fast that I was just living the moment having fun and very aware of where I came from, very aware that this doesn't last. And John was constantly pounding that into us. This one, this, you guys, you know, he was very intense about, we would practice from 11 in the morning to five at night, two hour break, seven to 11. Even if we were hanging out talking, it was a work, a, 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 a job. This was not just, hanging out and whatever, getting stoned. First of all, John didn't drink. John did no drugs. This was a serious, this was like being on a football team. You know, John walked into the into our uh, practice room one day after American Fool and we're trying to get songs ready for, uh, or maybe it was after Uh Huh. He, he still doesn't trust the music business and he shouldn't because you can get dropped in like one bad record, you're gone. So John right. comes in and says, he brings in all these records from the 60s, 70s, 80s. He wants us to learn what made these songs hits. And then he, he did a lot of business, you know, yelling and screaming at record labels and, you know, uh, lawyers and managers. Anyway, he says, listen, you guys, I write the same songs all the time. You guys got to come up with innovative and creative parts that make these songs hits. And Aronoff, if someone's got a better drum beat for you to play than what you're playing, you fucking play it. And all you guys... Nobody owns their instruments. We all play each other's instruments. I need ideas. I need hits. We need hit records. And he walked out of the room. And I remember thinking, what an asshole. But I'll have to admit, back now I realize his delivery sucked, but the message was spot on. He was like a, like a football coach telling his team, listen, we're in this together, even though he makes all the money, but we're in this together. We have to do this together. So if like we have a hit record, we all get Super Bowl rings. And man, he was spot on. So that made me always not trusting and on guard. As big as we were, staying at Ritz Carlton's Four Seasons, we were like on TV all the time, four Saturday Night Lives. We were on every TV show. We were rock gods. I could go anywhere and people would know who I was, who we were. Our fans were crazy and screaming, throwing bras and underwear at us. It was a crazy time. But I always was aware of we could lose this. So I never took it for granted. And I was a workaholic. And any day off I had, if I could record or make a record, I was there. Did, uh, did Mellencamp have an, an issue with you playing music with other people? Uh, at first, he didn't, as long as it didn't in interfere with his stuff. But when he took year, two years off or three years off, he, he said he was going to take two years off. After the last uh, uh, show it on the Lonesome Jubilee Tour in, in Milwaukee, Summerfest, he said, I'm quitting the music business for three years, so don't spend this bonus check in one place. And I'm like, what? 
And suddenly it dawned on me, oh my God, if he quits, I'm out of a job. And I just got my first divorce, child support, house payments, car payments, you know, normal stuff that everybody has, except for maybe the divorce. But anyway, <laughs> and I'm I'm like, oh my God, I only got like enough money to pay for about five months of bills. So I'm like, the next day I woke up and I went, all right, I've been working with Wonders and he quits. Now I'm going to go work with all the other rock stars. So then I started going to LA. Started, I was doing sessions, but I was on the phone all the time. I was I was hustling back then. Records were being sold. So people were in bars trying to sign bands. There was agents there, managers. You'd be in the studio and a guy, you walk out of your, your room and they go, oh my God, you in town? Hey, how, how would you like to play on our record? And next thing you know, I'm like becoming one of the, the new big session guys in LA. And then I went after Nashville because Indiana is like only four hours north of Nashville. And then I had drum sets in Nashville, drum sets in LA, drum sets in New York, drum sets in Germany, drum sets in uh, Japan, and of course in Indiana where I lived. And I was flying all over the world making records. And when I got back with John, uh, he wasn't happy that I was, basically I had another career. I took myself off retainer so that if he called, I'd say, hey, I'm not on retainer anymore. And the retainer wasn't that much. I mean, I was making more in one day doing sessions at double scale than I was on that retainer. So it eventually, yeah, I was doing a little feet record in LA and John called up, or his guy called up and said, John needs you on Thursday. I said, I can't come home until two weeks. I'm recording a little feet record. John picks up the phone and goes, hey, listen, fucker, you come home. You can do any record you want any session you want but when i need you i need you I said john it doesn't work that way they literally built built this session around me they wanted to know when i was available we blocked it out i'm getting paid a lot of money and i can't just walk out and then i said something else and then he hung up on me <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna not tell me what you said <laughs> uh, i guess i can i'll say hey you know i heard i won't say the bad it says I, very famous band says, well, I hear that these guys split everything four ways. Click. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kenny Aronoff is our guest today. <laughs> Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll is the book. He's a public speaker. He's still on tour all the time. Um, what year did you do the most dates? Have you ever played more than 150 shows in a year? So Kenny Aronoff is our guest today. The book is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. In all of these things that you've done down through the years, there have to be a couple of moments that stand out, a couple of those pinch me moments where you still go back to being that 10-year-old kid uh, from Massachusetts and you you realize my real life has exceeded my dreams. Uh, give me a couple of those pinch me moments. Yeah, well, one is recording with the Rolling Stones, you know, Bridges of Babylon record, two weeks in the studio with the Stones. Are you, are you kidding me? Wow. Another moment would be when I was doing the Ford Theater and, you know, at this point I'd met everybody, but I'd never met a president. So I'm having a, a little bit of a hang with Bill Clinton, right? The peak of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And it was, uh, yeah, I mean, you see why that guy is so charming and so cool. <laughs> he looks you right in the eye, man. And when you read my book, I, I'll, I'll wait for you to read that story. Uh, what he says, that, that was a pinch me moment because, you know, dealing with a president, um, and he's the type of guy who looks right into your eyes, grabs your hand and your forearm and pulls you in close. Doesn't talk in your ear. He talks right at you. Like him or not, he was, I saw the, the magic of Bill Clinton and how 
you know, and it, it actually was a, a, a lesson for me. You know, I want to be that guy. If you don't know who the fuck I am, I want people to want to know, holy shit, that guy must be somebody. And who the fuck is he? I want to talk to this guy. It's something it eludes knowledge, confidence, wisdom, experience, uh, no ego, all the coolest things, you know, that I think makes uh, somebody, you know, a, a hero in life, somebody who is looked at as a, 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 a someone to look up to. So, yeah, it's not an ego thing at all. But that's what I, I got from that. Um, let me take some other incredible moments. There's so many. I mean, you know, when you walk in the studio, uh, you know, recording, uh, auditioning for the Smashing Pumpkins when they were the biggest, biggest alternative band in the world. Now I'm working with uh, in an area that's outside of my realm. So this meant a lot to me to be playing with the Pumpkins on a world tour coming after Gish, Siamese Dream and Melancholy. Uh, and all eyes were on the band and me because I was this new guy that was taking the great Jimmy Chamberlain, uh, the drummer for the Pumpkins job. And it was like, wow. And this is one of these big pivotal moves that, you know, it's like the same drummer who records with Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings, which was also an incredible moment, The Highwaymen, yeah. making the record with the, those iconic guys. This is not some like bubblegum new popular country act these guys are the original bad boys you know one step the legends the legends one step past hank williams you know i mean these guys are they are they don't give a shit about commercial radio they're all about being authentic so hanging with them was heavy but that guy who gets pulled in to that group and asked to go on tour with them and turned it down to stay with mellencamp usually does not get the call to do the, uh, the the Smashing Pumpkins tour when they're the biggest alternative band in the world. That is huge. It, you know, that is huge. And so- It's gotta be something that, that people who are listening today can take away from your ability that you've learned down through the years to assimilate into all these very different uh, personality groups. You know, I, I saw some great video of you playing with Leonard Skinner freaking Leonard Skinner, right? And, and then, you know, something is different than Smashing Pumpkins, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. The Leonard Skinner band, and they asked me to join the band. Wow. Dude, what an honor. These guys are like the Rolling Stones of the South. This is another world playing with Leonard Skinner, and they are real. They are the real fucking deal. They're not chasing after hits either. They just come in and do their shit. Like it or not, this is us. That's what I want to be part of. And, you know, so, yeah, I'm, I, okay, the takeaway from here is like what I said. You, it's not about you. God damn it, it's not about you. It's about them. You're working for them. What can you do to make them sound better? What can I do that I that'll make them sound better that no other drummer can do so they want me to do it again? So that comes from a playing standpoint, but to get along, being able to connect, communicate, and collaborate, being able to fit in, but not silly in a cool way you know in a cool way where you're you're fitting in you're not too over the top but you being you and you just ring their bell and i there's no way i could tell you if you're doing it right or wrong unless i'm standing next to you and watching you when you're communicating and then i could coach somebody and you know suggest you know maybe you should have listened more not talked as much 
And, you know, why do I get called for all the TV shows? I'm the most viewed guy on Access TV. You know, the Johnny Cash tribute, the, 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 the uh, you know, the uh, Merle Haggard tribute, the, the Dr. John tribute, the John Lennon tribute, the, I could go on and on, or the seven Kennedy Center honors. They want somebody there that can play, yes. In my case, they have to be able to read music incredibly well and be able to, you know, lead the show, understand them and get along. When you when I hear a comment from a producer of a show like the Beatles tribute and the, I see the producer go, oh, fuck, thank God you're here. <laughs> what does that mean? That's not just because of my playing. It's because they know that I am a problem solver. I get along with everybody. I'm going to work with the stage manager, the producer, the MD and all the artists. They have no worries. Or if I do Kennedy Center honors and I heard this is what happens, the band could be Elton John, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Chris Cornell, uh, John Mellencamp, uh, you know, Lionel Richie, Springsteen, Sting. They all come. I played with all of them. They come in and go, well, who's in the band? They want to know so they can be comfortable. When they know that a guy like me's there, they know, oh, he always gets it right. You know, he's he's trustworthy and he gets along. And if I want him to do this, he'll do it. Um, a great team player, nice guy, and always sounds good and looks good on TV. Well, then they don't have to bring their drummer, which they would do if they felt uncomfortable. This is big stuff, man. That's the takeaway. It's not just about your playing. It's huge. And you know, there's a great tenet uh, in the Bible of all things called servant leadership. And it sounds like that's what you do in spades. Hey, one final question. I was with, uh, with a very funny guy, a terrific guy that I think you probably know, Joe Piscopo, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, Joe is as funny as can be, you know, him from Saturday Night Live, can also play drums incredibly well. We were talking about the greatest drummers of all time. You know, there's the, the age old argument of Gene Krupa or Buddy Rich. And as a kid, when I played, I knew I could never be one of those guys. You're actually on that list of 100 greatest rock drummers of all time. When you look at the guys who influence you, who are really great drummers, who are, you know, the top three or four on your list? Well, in the jazz world, I mean, I never could be that guy, but it's Buddy Rich, you know, I mean, Buddy Rich, Alvin Jones, Gene Krupa, uh, Louis Belson, to name a few. Yeah. In the the rock world, I mean, now, you know, there's things you get away from the simpler drummers that are creative with their parts and their feel and their sound, Charlie Watts and uh, Ringo Starr. But then, you know, as far as the guy that really solidified and made, you know, drumming from a feel, sound, uh, part wise, John Bonham, hands down, is like, you know, it helped. It didn't hurt that he was with Zeppelin. It was such a creative band. But John Bonham is is, is extraordinary. He'd be like the you know the top rock drummer. But as far as a kid, you know, Mitch Mitchell blew me away because he was a jazz drummer playing rock and roll, uh, played in time, great feel, had a lot of creative ideas, and I um, he, he I could relate to that because I was listening to jazz as a kid. So, you know, I, I really, really related to, to him. Uh, Ginger Baker, Keith Moon, uh, you know, other drummers that, you know, redefined music, uh, drumming. The other guy that, that did it was the next guy in line was Billy Cobham. I mean, I'd never seen anybody. It was like watching a running back in football play with the most, the fastest hands. In, and he was ambidextrous, right-handed, left-handed. The guy was not just a... a he was he could play any style of music. I mean, he was a big time bebop jazz drummer, but a fusion drummer could hold down a beat, funky, uh, musical, put solo records out. I mean, this guy 
you know, I tell Billy every time I see him, I says, man, Jesus, dude, you almost fucking ruined my career because I was trying to be like you, which never was going to happen. I love that, that you hand out the accolades and you're very uh, generous with them. I saw the show with you and uh, and Fogarty here in D.C. last month, and uh, and I can hear some John Bonham and you can hear enough. Oh, yeah, you're right, man. I'm chasing after that guy. You were playing awesome. hard, playing well. And uh, listen, I appreciate you being here today. The book is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. You do a lot of public speaking gigs when you're not on stage playing with people. If people want to find out more about you, where can they, where can they look you up? Well, if you go on my website, and I am creating a new website, it's going to be really badass. Uh, there's a, a, if, you want, if someone wants to hire me about speaking, just go to my website, www.kennyaronoff.com, and you'll see there's a speaking wheel. It's like a, it might be a 12-minute reel of me speaking, and there'll be a place where you can call my agent at calentertainment.com. Um, is it Cal Entertainment? Uh, well, you go to the website, www.calentertainment.com. Um, I got another book that came out. It's called, it's a Legends book that Modern Drummer put out. They, they, I'm honored that I'm picked as a Legends. It's a 150-page it's book. You can get it on the Modern Drummer website. It's just called Kenny Aronoff. And yeah, the uh, website, there's a way you can send a message to me. People hire me because I have a, a studio called Uncommon Studios LA. And I, I mean, just two weeks ago, I recorded 30 songs in one week. I just did five songs two nights ago. I'm constantly re uh, recording people's music from all over the world. And you can hire me to, make, to be on your record. I love it. Kenny Aronoff. And the website is KennyAronoff.com, right? Yep, www.kennyaronoff.com. Hey, buddy, thank you for spending time with us today. Oh, man, sorry about the interruptions, and so cool, man, to talk to you. I love that we met way back in 96, and I promise I won't steal your next girlfriend from you. I appreciate that. Give our pal, our mutual pal, Bob Malone, my best. All right, happy holidays. See you. Thanks. That's Kenny yeah, Aronoff, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the show. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. <laughs>